welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Tracy Balzer. Mrs. Balzer is Director of Christian Formation at John Brown University. My name is Tracy Balzer, and I'm Director of Christian Formation here at JBU. It's a role that I have had since most of you were born. And a lifetime ago, I too attended a Christian university very much like JBU. And somewhere in my, in my junior or senior year, I think it was, I took a class on the book of John. Now, while I'm unable to access everything I learned in that class, I remember a lot of things. And one thing I remember especially is the way our professor, Dr. Larry Shelton, made sure that we were absolutely clear on John's purpose for writing his gospel. It is not a mystery. John stated it himself near the end of his book. And we see it in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. You can see it now on the screen above. It says, in John's words, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we work through this gospel here in chapel this semester, we will encounter many colorful narratives about the life of Jesus and his disciples and his mission. And you can be assured that each one of those stories is included very purposefully so that you may believe, that we may believe. You'll hear that word believe many times through this gospel. To believe certainly, certainly involves intellectual assent, to grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is and believe it to be historically and theologically true. Keith set that foundation for us very clearly last week in chapel that John emphatically declares from the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus was God incarnate, the word made flesh, the light of the world who cannot be overcome by darkness. Before John does anything else, he establishes Christ's supremacy. So to believe means to receive these truths about who Jesus is as the foundation of our faith. But belief includes still more. It also includes a growing experience of Christ's presence with us even now. So as we discuss John's gospel this semester, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would come to believe, perhaps for the first time or more deeply, and that by believing you would come to know Christ that you would grow in your love for him and in your ability to be absolutely and experientially certain of his love for you. Now, I invite you to open up your own Bibles to John chapter 1 and 2. And I'm going to start just with a bit of a summary to get us caught up 
um, to the passages that we're ultimately looking at in greater depth today. So buckle up, I'm gonna scoot through this rather quickly. So uh, we see in chapter one, verse seven, that on the first day, John introduces us to another John, Jesus's cousin who has a keen awareness that he is the one that the prophet Isaiah predicted would come as a voice of one crying out in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. He's the one we've come to know as John the Baptist. The next day, says verse 29, chapter one, John the Baptist sees Jesus and exclaims, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world followed by a really great testimony, again, about Christ's supremacy as the chosen one. The next day, in verse 35, John the Baptist directs his followers to Jesus, saying again, look, here's the Lamb of God. And two of John's followers, Andrew and his brother Simon, whom Jesus later calls Peter, become followers of Jesus, believing that they had found the Messiah. All of this happens in the first 42 verses of chapter one. Beginning in verse 43 of chapter one, the gospel writer invites us into a compelling conversation. And it is to this passage, finally, that we're going to give our attention. So chapter one, verse 43, and you can read along on the screen if you don't have your Bibles open. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Nathanael is clearly the focus of this short narrative. Philip has told him about Jesus of Nazareth, and in response, Nathaniel derisively questions the legitimacy of Philip's claim. How could anything good, least of all, the prophesied Messiah, come out of the unremarkable village of Nazareth? I really wish I could hear Nathaniel's tone of voice here. I mean, was he just blowing Philip off? Was he being a know-it-all? Was he being totally cynical? Or maybe he was just a little crabby that day. We can't really know. But I think it is at least safe to say that Nathaniel has a bit of an attitude and he feels free to express it. Why then did Jesus claim that Nathaniel was 
truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That sounds like quite a compliment for someone who just dismissed Jesus' hometown and by association, Jesus himself. I wonder if this perhaps is just Jesus' way of acknowledging Nathaniel's honest skepticism. That yes, Nathaniel has an attitude and he feels free to express it. No deceit. Jesus sees a man who is skeptical, maybe even cynical, and yet that man has the humility to walk toward Jesus when he could have pridefully walked away. When Jesus responds to Nathanael, those words land with force. Here is truly an Israelite in which there is no deceit. Nathanael realizes that he is not being merely tolerated by Jesus. He is truly known by Jesus. That he is not only seen by Jesus under the fig tree, he is also told what he himself will one day see. Heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I think there is hope here for the cynic, for the questioner, for the skeptic. I remember a simple illustration that one of my husband's seminary professors shared with us while discussing the journey of faith and the lifelong sanctifying work of God in our lives, the ups, the downs, the seasons of doubt, the seasons of assurance. His encouragement to us was that really it does no good for us to measure ourselves spiritually that the most important thing is not where you stand on some spiritual spectrum of holiness. What matters most is what direction you are facing. Are you walking away from God or are you walking toward him? Nathaniel's response reveals that you may be a skeptic, but in the midst of your skepticism or your cynicism or your crabbiness, you can make the decision to turn and face Jesus, to walk toward him rather than away. Nathaniel could have totally dismissed Philip's invitation to come and see and to just wallow in his prideful attitude. But instead, he walks with Philip toward Jesus. And it's there that he realizes that his preconceived notions about him, about Jesus, are in fact wrong that Jesus is indeed, much to his surprise, the Son of God. Now, if you or someone you know is having a hard time believing that anything good can come out of modern Christianity, I hope you or your friend will consider a deliberate turning toward Jesus himself. Better yet, do it with a friend. If you will take steps in his direction and see him for who he truly is, I think that you, like Nathaniel, will witness the truth that Jesus is indeed our rabbi, the son of God, the king of Israel. I pray that that will be so in your life. I have one more narrative to look at today. So let's move on. chapter 2. We read here in chapter 2 a great story. 
one you may be familiar with, where John tells us that on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And then John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I have another college memory that fits in here pretty well. It happened the day that I boldly strolled into the office of one of the most respected Bible professors at our college, Dr. Joe Davis. I had my Bible in hand and a proposition that I thought he would surely affirm. The wine Jesus drank was not alcoholic wine. I was a new student and had grown up in a Christian tradition that frowned upon alcohol consumption. Also, I had too many memories of my dad coming home late nights in a drunken stupor. Surely Jesus wouldn't drink alcohol. My very wise professor looked at me with a kind smile. Not a hint of condensation. Condescension, condensation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just sort of want to think about that. Uh, okay, no, no, no. Let's go back to the real story. Not a hint of condescension. Important difference. <laughs> and he gently suggested that I go research the question myself. So into the library I went, digging out commentaries and Greek lexicons and dictionaries, determined to find support for my position, and what do you know? The wine in the Bible, wherever it is mentioned, is not just grape juice. Nowhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament or the New, is there anything called wine that is not fermented. Now, all these years later, I remain grateful for my professor's gracious way of receiving my very honest naivete and, frankly, my cockiness. I had a bit of Nathaniel in me. My professor did not respond by patronizing me. Rather, he kindly urged me to do 
what I should do and be a good student and go do the research. It was a come and see moment for me. I hope that will be your experience here at JBU, that you will have the courage to ask honest questions, that you will be met with gracious guidance, but that you'll also have the humility to receive and learn, even if in the end you have to eat a bit of crow, as they say, whoever they are. Okay, so if wine was so prevalent in biblical times, at feasts and celebrations and mealtimes and weddings. Why do we have a no alcohol policy here at JBU? That is a very valid question, but it is for another conversation, which I would love to have with you sometime. Or maybe you could go research it yourself and then come tell me what you find. But for now, let's do talk about wine in John chapter two and the role that it plays in John's gospel. Now first I'd like to look at the confusing bit, at least it was for me, at the beginning where Jesus seems reluctant to assist when his mother tells him that the wedding wine has run out. His comment that his hour had not yet come is actually the first in a pattern of such instances in the gospel of John something that we can look for as we move through this book. In each case, like this one, Jesus does eventually take action. You might think of Mary and Martha's request that Jesus come to help, their, to help heal their brother, Lazarus. But Christ delays. He acts on his own initiative in keeping with the Father's will and not simply at the instigation of others. So here at the wedding, it simply was not nearly time for Christ's glory to be revealed on a grand scale. His hour had not yet come. And we know it will, eventually, many words and thousands and thousands of people later. But in this story, Jesus does eventually step in and miraculously provide an abundance of excellent wine, wine that is miraculously superior, not only in quantity, but in quality, especially in contrast to what the host provides, which was lesser in quality and obviously ran out before its time. Both the quantity and the quality are important symbols here, symbols that we see in the Old Testament in reference to the age of salvation and the blessing that will accompany the arrival of the Messiah. When John tells us here of Christ's first miracle, the changing of a large quantity of water into wine at a wedding feast, it is a signal to us, his readers, that the long-awaited Messiah has come. The kingdom of God has arrived. But when the story was actually taking place, the master had no idea where this amazing wine had come from. He gives credit to the bridegroom. The texts tell us that the servants who had drawn the water knew that Jesus had done it, but John doesn't tell us about their reaction. I mean, considering the magnitude of this miracle, Jesus was amazingly able to do it without drawing the crowd's attention. He did, however, draw the attention of some, his disciples. And what was the result? His disciples put their faith in him. They believed. 
This was precisely how Jesus intended for his glory to be revealed at this time, in his way, hidden, secret, and yet powerful enough to bond his friends to him, which would be critical to his mission going forward. Christ's first disciples, and now we, his modern disciples, learn from this first miracle that Jesus not only has command over the elements of nature, but that he provides abundantly and excellently. He fills the hungry with good things. Do you recognize those words? They're from Mary's Magnificat, the song she sang when she was pregnant with Jesus. Maybe that's why she ran to him when the wine ran out. He fills the hungry with good things. Jesus is not only powerful, he is abundantly generous. He is worthy of our belief. So, what are our takeaways today? One, that despite our unbelief, our skepticism, our cynicism, Christ's response to us is both generous and spectacular. And two, Jesus gives extravagantly in response to our emptiness, which he abundantly fills with the best wine himself. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you rule over all, and yet you took on the role of a humble human servant, all for the love of your creation, your people. Lord, we believe Help us in our unbelief to walk toward you in faith, to allow you to fill us with your abundant love and light for the sake of your name and kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.